Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can uh, also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema where you can get early access to uh, reviews, um, brief uh, mini reviews on movies and TV shows that I've seen for the first time as well as this month, I've done a rundown of my favorite film music of 2020. Next month, I'm going to be doing I'm going to be doing some exclusive uh, reviews about the DCEU in preparation for the Zack Snyder Justice League, and that is at Patreon.com/backslash/SonicSema. About a month ago, I had the chance to guest star on a podcast called Binge Movies, and it was really fun and. Uh, I I invited one of the uh, co-hosts of that to join me on my podcast, and we're going to have a little bit of fun with this uh, discussion. We're going to sort of do something akin to sort of what they do on binge movies, and uh, I, I'm pleased to be uh, joined by Jason from Binge Movies tonight. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for letting me come on your show. <laughs> I, I appreciate being here. What... What was the inspiration behind binge movies? What inspired you to uh, <laughs> what inspired you to uh, come up with that concept? Oh, um, well, for me, it was uh, you know my dad. You know, I, I grew up um, I grew up in the, the VHS era, the video store era. Mm-hmm. As a, you know, maybe some of your listeners did. My dad grew up in the the Palace Theater, the Movie Palace era. He was. Uh, he didn't have me until he was almost into his forties and he grew up in, um, Oklahoma outside of Oklahoma city before Oklahoma city was really built up and it gets so hot during the summer. It would just reach a point where the parents didn't have anything for their kids to do. And it was too hot to be outside. And so the only air conditioned place in town was the local movie palace and that they marketed, Hey, bring your kids here and pay a flat fee and we'll show them old adventure serials and newsreels and three stooges shorts and movies and everything was a double feature back then and for a flat rate you could be there pretty much all day and get snacks and candy and whatever it was like their version of daycare basically (laughs) and him and his sister my aunt would do that and so it sort of impressed upon him this habit from a very early age of like the way to consume movies is to watch a ton of them at the same time. And so when I came around and video stores were all the rage uh, and home video was just becoming a thing, uh, we obviously got our VCR and every Friday and most Saturdays, we would go to the video store and he would rent four to six tapes for Friday. And then we'd take them back in the morning and we'd get four to six more. <laughs> and that's pretty much what we did every weekend. And I don't think I consciously realized that was the inception of binge movies, but that's how I've always sort of consumed movies is like lumping them together and making connections and, mm-hmm. and watching a bunch of content at the same time. And, uh, I fast forward to the podcast era, one of my favorite movie podcasts, suddenly quit up out of nowhere after a few years and it was like two years and they still weren't coming back and I really couldn't find anything to replace what the 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 feeling that that show had and then I thought to myself what if 
I could produce a show that would not be identical to that, but would produce that same feeling in other people that you're in a conversation with friends or friendly people about movies and you really feel like you're in the room and you really feel like you're, you're a part of uh, the show and you're part of uh, the humor and like mm -hmm. camaraderie. And I think that's one thing that podcasts offer a lot of people, whether it be long drives to work or, uh, we're, you know, working from home now because of COVID over the last year, uh, it kind of puts a vo another voice in the room and lets you feel like you're having a conversation, even though you're kind of not. So those two things kind of coalesced, and that was the start of Binge Movie. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, the the episode, I'll, I'll go ahead and tease the episode that uh, we we did. Uh, I... I was part of, uh, you've been going through the 10 highest grossing movies of the 1990s yep. on the podcast, and we did numbers 6 through 10 of 1998 recently. Yep. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to people listening to that, and it was, honestly, it was a lot of fun. The more, there, like I said on the podcast, there's a part of me that was, kind of disappointed I didn't get five through one because of the fact that <laughs> yeah. there, there are some great films to talk about there, but honestly, I really like I really like the variety of discussion that could be had with the yeah. five that we ended up talking about. And uh I'm I'm looking forward to sharing that episode with people. It was it was a lot of fun to record. Yeah, it was great great having you on. I mean that's that's kind of what the show is, right? We binge five movies, they're all built around a theme. So you came on for, you know, the top grossing films of 1990, whatever. Like you said, we've done the series. Uh, so you're there for 98 and, you know, 10 through six. And so that's what brings those movies together. But it could be a different theme. It doesn't have to be about gross. It could just be about whatever, you know, we're uh, at some point, we're going to do uh, a killer kids episode, which is going to be mm -hmm. five movies about killer kids. <laughs> And then what you do is you watch them, we review them, and then we rank them. And then, you know, we have what we call the short list, which is my list. And then we have the guest list because we have guest hosts who, who do it with me on a weekly basis. You are one of those. So your best of that particular week gets added to the guest list. And then at the end of the season, because we do about four seasons a year, uh, at the end of each season, we then have what we call last movie standing where we get two guest film critics or podcasters to come on. They take my short list and the guest list and they have a snake debate kind of college debate format, but a little bit more fun, uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more loose, but still with some structure to it. And they have a nice friendly debate about which one movie is worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. And that movie goes into our no copyright infringement intended fault <laughs> and that's really what a binge movies is about we're not just watching these movies just to talk about them but we're yeah. trying to assess what are those movies that have the most merit regardless of overall genre or quality or the year it came out uh you know i mean we're trying to essentially create a collection a canon of mm -hmm. film out of our vault that you know we have some exploitation movies in there. We've got some some big box office winners in there. We've got some nostalgia favorites in there, but it all comes down to merit. It can't just be based on box office or nostalgia. Like, what is it about this movie and what it represents to film history that would mm -hmm. make it significant? So, you know, it's, it's sort of a, that thought experiment of if you 
could only curate X amount of material to, to show people of, to, you know, if aliens from another world came and said like, what are movies? And you could only show them a handful of mm. the best examples. That's, that's kind of what we're getting at. And we have, a, it's uh, someone described our show as both intensely analytical and, and intensely ridiculous. And I think that <laughs> is the spirit of the show is we try to walk that line, which is hard to do. We yeah. try to walk that line of being, a little out there, a little weird, a little uh, a little uh, zany at times, but also still analytical and actually try to do some kind of film criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that was one of the most entertaining aspects of uh, joining the show because of the fact that the five movies we did, like all of them are very much popcorn movies in a lot of ways, yeah. even though one of them was an Oscar winner. And yeah. being able to sort of look at those from a critical eye, as well as just having fun talking about them, is is one of the things that was that was so much fun to be on that show. And I love the idea of. I think that's one of the things that's so engaging about your show is the fact that it's it you're not necessarily going to be talking about the same movies that everybody else is talking about. And we I try mean, that too. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, well, and you know, look, there's some value. There can be some value to that, but at the same time, it's like you're you're basically it, it's great to have a niche that you're um, that you're feeding into, and I I think that's that's one of the things that's so interesting about this because, like, for instance, in R five, like we. We talked about everything from Doctor Doolittle to Lethal Weapon Four to Shakespeare in Love, and yeah, right. it's it's like I can't think of three movies that are more different than any of those. And but putting them in the context of oh, these were some of the biggest box office hits of that year, you figure you're kind of able to figure something out, not just about like that movie year, but sort of like, what was it about these movies that drove people to watch them in the first place? Yep. Well, you've been, Brian, you've been doing this a long time and talking about film and <laughs> writing about film. Yeah. And so you're, you're an OG with this, but you know, <laughs> you and I are roughly the same age. So you probably remember when Siskel and Ebert had a TV show and when Gene mm -hmm. Siskel was still with us. Yeah. You know, and every week that show would come out, whether it was on PBS in the old, old days or whether it was in syndication once mm -hmm. Disney bought them. But regardless, they talked about four to four, five, six movies every yeah. single episode. And none of those movies had anything in common with each other for the most part, other than those were that week's releases or those were the movies they were reviewing that week. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how film criticism used to work. If you were, if you remember, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. The newspaper, when people read newspapers, uh, like here are the movies that are coming out and you had either your local film critic or like the AP, whoever, you know, was in syndication or a combination thereof. And you'd look in your local newspaper and you would read, four or five reviews for the four or five movies that were coming out that weekend to pick which movie you're going to watch. Yeah. And that's with the internet that's kind of been lost, especially, you know, with magazines and newspapers, they don't exist. They don't have the power that they used to have a lot you know, traditional film criticism that you and I grew up with doesn't have the same voice that it did, which on the one hand is good because it gives 
fans entry into the conversation. On the other hand, there is this line that we cross of like, what is actual film criticism and forgive me for using this word, but like, what is fanboyism, yeah. right? Like, yeah. are we just a marketing arm for the latest releases because we're fans of, you know, say Marvel or DC or whatever. And so we're not really being critical of these movies in a, in the, in the truest sense of that word. We're either just, we hate them and we're just trying to be as shocking in our takes to get clicks or um, we're just basically a marketing arm of like, Hey, check out the new trailer for <laughs> we're just free PR yeah. for movies as opposed to thinking critically about the movies. And that's why like, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I think what we're trying to do, and we're not always successful, is in the midst of the anarchy and the biz- wackiness and bizarreness sometimes of what our show is, and the humor, humor and the jokes and the meta-ness of it all, and the lore and everything that we do in the show, in the midst of that, we're kind of trying to refine that spirit, which is why we try to have other, you know, people who are writing, people who are uh doing podcasts people who are i guess what i'm saying is we try to be selective of who our guests are so we can kind of thread that needle and do both yeah we want to be entertaining in our own right but we also want to be informative and yeah we might i never thought i would sit down and like have a 25 minute discussion with uh an internet friend about eddie murphy's dr doolittle reboot (laughs) from the 90s but we did, and we got into mm-hmm. some interesting conversation there, you know? Yeah. So you never know. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I love the movies that everybody loves, too. Or I want to talk, like, I 2021, I'm excited for Dune. I know everyone's going to talk about Dune. I want to talk about Dune. We'll probably talk about Dune. We have <laughs> what we call instant reactions on the show, which are, like, bonus features, which are, you know, um, as new movies come out, we just sort of will... We'll, pick and choose and talk about them very briefly and do kind of a, a short review, just literally an instant reaction to it. So I talk about the major stuff as well, but I think so, I think having a little bit of distance and I think having other people's perspective like yours and I think putting them together, it changes the way that we talk about movies in an interesting way. So that's the heart of the show. And I hope you, I hope you had a good time. Uh, yeah. It sounds like you did. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of my favorite um, things is the, one of the things that I certainly hope for and one of the things that I find most rewarding, especially about the conversation we had, is that it wasn't just two people who had the same feelings about the same movies. Like, you and I, yeah. you and I had very different feelings on some of those movies. Yes. And, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that, it's, yeah. it's, it's one thing for, like, it's one thing to have like genuine, you know, appreciation for something that you agree with somebody on and you can share that and record and talk about, but it's another thing to get engaged in a genuine critical conversation about, well, what works about this movie for you versus what works about this movie for me. Right. And I, I think that's one, especially, and I think that's part of the reason why ultimately the movies that we did talk about in that episode were ones that I enjoyed talking about because of the fact that we ended up having, we didn't have a, have fundamentally the same feelings on all of those that even the ones right. that we did agree on. Yeah, and, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. No, you're exactly right. And that's the thing is like, 
you and I can both, you know, if we're just giving scores, you and I might land in the same score. And we, we do, right? We give scores mm-hmm. on binge movies and we do rankings and we may end up at the same ranking, the same score, but for wildly different reasons. Yeah. And to me, that's where the, the money is. And that's where the fun of it is, is you're going to see something different in Shakespeare in Love or, or you know, Dr. Doolittle or whatever than I am. Or today, we're talking about three movies that are off the beaten path. <laughs> like, we may end up vehemently disagreeing or we may end up vehemently agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what... Like, here's the thing that you and I have in common, regardless of, or, or people who are listening to your show or people who listen to binge movies or people we're friends with on film Twitter, we're all movie lovers. Mm-hmm. And most of us are movie obsessives, if yeah. we're going to be honest with it, right? And for a variety of reasons, we find comfort there. It, they help us process our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions. We, we, we not everybody is. I've got tons of friends who maybe watch two or three movies a year mm-hmm. through, you know, they, they, and I'm not talking about going to the theater. They may not go to the theater at all. They just don't, if it's on cable, it's on in the background when something else is going, but to sit down and focus solely on a movie, they may only watch a handful a year. Yeah. That's not you. And that's not me. <laughs> and that's not most people listen to this, right? Like we're the sort of people who are like, we're going to watch a handful of movies this weekend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or tonight yeah. right <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i i've been i've been doing like two three movies a day the past few days i mean i yeah. did today's really the only time that i did like one and but it was because of the fact that i mean i've been doing so much in the past few days i was like eh, i'm gonna take a little bit of a break yeah but yeah i mean it's yeah i mean i'm basically gonna pretty much go back to that thought that grind of two three movies a day you know tomorrow so yep and it's for a variety of reasons sometimes it's a movie that i'm reviewing sometimes it's going to be a movie that i'm watching for words purposes and uh you know sometimes it's just going to be a movie that i watch for the hell of it i mean sometimes and i will admit there are times where that last part it's hard to do when yeah you're doing so much watching for podcasts or reviews and stuff like that. But like when you get a chance to watch a movie just for the sake of watching it, either whether it's something that, Oh, I've never seen this before or Hey, it's something that I haven't watched in a while. Like I just rewatched runaway last night. And it's like, <laughs> I was in that mood of like, yeah, I was right, in that yeah. mood of like eighties <laughs> because of the movies that we're wa- talking about today. Yeah. I was in the mood for like 80s, 90s sci-fi. And I'm like, I haven't seen Runaway in a while. So it's like, it's on Prime. I'm going to watch it. And it's it's one of those things where it's like that type. Sometimes it's hard to fit those type of viewings in. And yep. I, I think that's always kind of important for us to be able to do. Well, they're like palate cleansers too. And it also, it connects when you're a content creator and I don't really like that term because it sounds yucky, but when you're, when, when you're at some point, we, we, we have things that we're, we're passionate about. Those become hobbies or parts mm-hmm. of our lifestyle. And then maybe we try to monetize that or, or whatever. We try to like build a platform around that because we're that into it. We're that obsessive about it. 
and then that eventually like the thing that we're passionate about and the thing that we love becomes a, a job like anything else right it becomes like you still enjoy it it's not mm-hmm. digging ditches but it's it becomes like okay like it's something we have to do as opposed to something we get to do mm-hmm. and so every once in a while it's great to like have a reset where it's like i'm not doing this for a podcast or for a blog or for a written review i'm not submitting this to publication i'm not doing this for even letterboxed i'm just <laughs> doing it because i like movies and and i just need to unplug from the the machinery of it all and just get back to like my first love kind of a thing and mm-hmm. when we when we do that uh it ends up making the content on the back end better too yeah. and even if it doesn't it's just worth it because we're reconnecting with why we fell in love with movies in the first place mm-hmm. yeah before we get to the uh discussion of the uh three movies tonight where can people find your podcast uh, the podcast itself is pretty much everywhere. We're on Spotify. We are on, obviously, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn, uh, Google Podcasts. Anywhere where you find podcasts, you'll find us. Uh, the best thing you can do is, you know, regardless of where you subscribe, like every podcaster out there, leave us a review. Leave us a five-star mm-hmm. review. That helps all of us out. Um as far as like our social media and stuff like that, we're exclusively on Twitter at binge movies, really simple. We're also on letterbox, letterbox.com backslash binge movies. And if you're a Podbean aficionado, it's just binge movies.podbean.com as our site. And that's it. It's all right there. Pretty simple. Excellent. And yes, check it out. If you haven't listened to binge movies before, it's really an entertaining show. And with that, I thought it might be fun to bring a little bit of binge movies to the Sonic Cinema <laughs> podcast to, as sort of an introduction to the podcast if you haven't listened to it. So I, when, when we were, uh, and we were um, talking about uh, this part of the podcast where you would join me, I asked you, I originally asked you for three movies in like your favorite genre and then you were like, well, I don't really have a favorite genre. It's like, well, what about right. like three of your favorite movies? And it's like, I'll get back to you. And then you came back to me with the three <laughs> movies that we are going to be talking about tonight. I'm curious, <laughs> and I'll admit, like these are all movies I'd never seen before. Yeah. So I'm. What was it that inspired you to uh, do these three movies in particular? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> it's a loaded question, Brian. Uh, I, I saw your tweet where you're like, I'm five minutes into the first movie for binge movies. And I'm thinking about calling the whole thing off. Uh, that was part of the inspiration. No, uh, you know, for me, it was, um, I, there's something about talking about, these are not my three favorite movies of all time, but there's something about talking about movies that are, underseen, underthought about, underappreciated, and maybe maybe underappreciated is too strong of a word. I wouldn't qualify or quantify any of these necessarily as hidden gems, mm-hmm. but <laughs> movies that are out there and are available and have almost no legacy yeah. or very a very small legacy. And there's something interesting about those movies because mm-hmm. um they haven't been picked over to death. 
And it's easier in, in my mind, they, they lead to more fun conversation and to, because yeah. I don't have any, like if, if we're going to sit here and talk about inception, for instance, I probably have a good idea of what you're going to say about inception, not because you're not a unique and creative person, but because I've heard millions of people right. talk about right. inception. <laughs> I have no damn idea what you're going to say about transfers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll go ahead and start. So the first movie is uh, 1984's Transfers, which is yes, directed, right. directed by Charles Band. And I will say, like, before we get in too deep into discussing transfers, I will say it's like, as I was watching all three of these movies, I did feel like there is a common similarity. Like, they're all, like, sci-fi horror-type things where they're... And they are all have a little bit of zombie element into them. So it's like yep. there's a little bit of a connection there. And, uh, yeah, it, it was... I. And this was the movie I was talking about where it's like on, in that tweet where it's like, yeah, I'm five minutes into this. I'm not sure whether to be excited or whether to uh, just call quit. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so so the first movie is Transfer, Chan Transfers, which is uh, directed by Charles Band. It can be currently seen on Tubi, uh, which is yeah. how I watched it. Yep. And um, I so what you what you typically do um is you you ask you ask for like a simple like <clears throat> a simple um sort of one line sort of log line about how you would describe this yeah. movie so oh the way the way i would describe this is a blade runner ripoff turns into a terminator ripoff yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then becomes the genesis for Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, the thing is, I didn't. The thing that struck me so much about this movie is that I had no idea there were like five of these. Like I had six. no idea. There six of them. Oh my god, six. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> but but the thing is, but it also doesn't surprise me because of the fact that the ending of this one is one of those gratuitous sequel sets up setups where it's like, Oh, Hey, of course there's going to be a second movie in here. Um, I have to say though, it's like, I, I ended up enjoying this one like more yeah. than I expected. It's a, yeah. even, even though it's so very blatantly obvious that the first few minutes are basically ripped off from Blade Runner. And then yeah. the premise itself is essentially Terminator this, this is this is a fun movie. <laughs> well, what's so odd about this movie? Okay, I think this, if I'm not mistaken, this is the feature film debut of Helen Hunt, mm -hmm. and she's in two of the six sequels. She's in Transfers One and Transfers Two. Yeah, this is stars uh, Tim Thomerson, who, if you're a genre fan or if you grew up in the '80s and you went to video stores, you probably know who he is. He made a few appearances in some like actual mainstream releases, but for the most part, he's 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 uh, he's sort of um, how do I, I mean how do you quantify him? Uh, he's he's basically like a B movie god. Yeah, he's in he he's either he's in Transfers. He had multiple franchises. 
that were almost all under the Charles Band Empire Pictures slash Full Moon umbrella, which is Trancers, which is like his marquee franchise, <laughs> and then the Doll Man series, which had the immaculate Doll Man versus Demonic Toys crossover <laughs> movie. So you had <laughs> multiple franchises crossing over. Uh, and by Doll Man, he is the Doll Man. He is a, a cop who has shrunk down to doll size. <laughs> and that is the plot of Doll Man. Now, in Trancers, not only is it blatantly a Blade Runner ripoff, especially at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. He then has to travel through time uh, because in this world, it's also like a Scanners ripoff, kind of, mm -hmm. because there is a psychic bad guy who has the ability to take over people's minds and use them as he pleases, do his evil bidding. You know, he can take over, he can Jedi mind trick. He can take over the weak minded and they somehow become zombies when he does this or basically zombies and he can speak through them. He's traveled back into the past in the this world. Time travel doesn't work like Terminator. It works like Assassin's Creed, just like 25 years earlier which is you can only travel through your own bloodline. Yeah. So your, your body can't go back in time, but your consciousness can through your bloodline and into an ancestor. And uh, the Tim Thomerson plays Jack Death. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that, that, he, that name. <laughs> yes. It's just amazing. That yeah. name is amazing. And he's hamming it up for all of his glory. And what's so weird is you're right. It's a Terminator ripoff, but it came out in 1984. So yeah. this is either like the fastest turnaround in production time ever, or somebody saw Cameron's script floating around and took elements of it, or maybe they just saw the trailer for Terminator and then <laughs> made a movie off of the trailer, which I wouldn't put it past Charles right. Band. So it's funny because of the fact that... Um... It came out in the UK in November of 84, which we'll put right around the time Terminator came out. But yep. it didn't hit the United States until May of 1985. Which is interesting right. because of the fact that it's like, I guess the, the, the thinking was probably, oh, we'll wait a little bit longer and then, you know, we'll sort of ride on the Terminator's coattails. Right. And, uh... You know, and it's funny because of the fact that I also, I also, I, I wonder if this was sort of an inspiration a little bit of a Demolition Man as well. Because of the fact that the, the main character originally thinks that Whistler, the villain, is dead. And he's told, no, he's not. You have to go get him. And it's like, you know, there's, it's not completely Demolition Man, but it has some similar elements um, I, th I think there's a certain B-movie veneer to this that is also, yeah. you know, 10, 10 years later or roughly nine years later uh, on Demolition Man. Yeah. And I think there's, I, I, honestly, I think that's what's so interesting to talk about this sort of film for two reasons. If your listeners are old enough, they should, and once again, if they frequented video stores, Full Moon Charles Band basically figured out, he, he took the essentially the Roger Corman format, mm -hmm. but rather than apply it to like midnight movies or drive-in theaters, he did it for home video. There was such a hunger, a ravenous hunger for home video that the major studios, you know, 
there there weren't there weren't the number of movies being produced that there are now. Yeah. By major studios. Yeah. And so you could very easily see all of the new major releases and go to your video store and be like, I've seen everything that's in the store. Mm-hmm. So it created this, it's not even a secondary market, but they created this like B-movie market or recreated a B-movie market, not the drive-in, but at your local mom and pop. And Full Moon was definitely the king of that, which is they would put movies into production. They they had a stable of people that they used. They put them in production very, very, very quickly and they'd get them out and they were... What I would say is they were slightly better than your average straight-to-video movie. They were not yeah. this this Transfers One, I think, had a theatrical release in the States very briefly, did not do well. All the other transfers went straight to video. Mm-hmm. Most of his movie, most of his movies went straight to video. Um, he ended up producing most of them and having other people direct and this, that, whatever. But um I mean, they, they, he's got the subspecies franchise. He's got the transfers franchise. He had, and, and the thing is, they were these tapes were being rented, yeah. right? So no, nobody knows transfers now. There's six of them for a reason because they made money. They made yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. And because yeah. you 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 would create a B movie and you do awesome box art mm-hmm. that was indistinguishable from a professional release you put most of your money in the box art if we're being honest yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then people are going to the video store looking for something to watch on a friday or saturday night they didn't know the difference Mm -hmm. right and so they were just picking it up it's not like now where it's like you 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 see something on amazon prime prime video or tubi it's like a newer b movie and it's just made by consumer camera yeah you can just tell it's junk that's just thrown on there and it's just a cheap bad photoshop job of a poster and you're like this you immediately know it's crap. Yeah. In the eighties, it was easier to trick us into watching movies like Transfers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's interesting, the second thing that's interesting about it is Hollywood. These high concept sci-fi action horror movie mashups were all the rage in the eighties, and some of them were blockbusters. Some of them mm-hmm. were box office gold. And then, to your point of Demolition Man, into the nineties, this was what makes the demolition man script any better or worse than the transfer script other than you have better actors and better talent and bigger budgets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. But uh, premise wise there, (laughs) what's the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, this fits completely in with the aesthetic of action sci-fi movies in the eighties where it's like, you have these, you have these cheesy lines of dialogue. You have these, you have these ridiculous plots. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I, one of the things that I actually ended up liking about all of these is I'm a huge uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan. So it's yeah. like, I love the idea of watching like cheesy movies and, you know, they're making fun of them, but it's like, it's being able to watch that type of thing is a lot of fun because yep. of you especially if you love movies, you can really see the cliches. You can really see how ridiculous the premises are. And I mean, this, I, one of my favorite things that I wrote down about this was somebody actually says, what kind of name is Jack death? Yes. Like yes. Self awareness <laughs> to say yes. that is, yeah. is just awesome. 
in this movie. Well, that's that was the thing I was going to key in on. I, I, you know, once again, when your dad's pulling six tapes from the video store every weekend, we got a lot of full moon in that grocery bag. Like it, we, like it was just, you know, there was a Disney movie, there was a whatever the big franchise or action movie was, there was something that he could watch with my mom, some kind of Harrison Ford, you know, political thriller or drama or something with Robert Redford. And then there was a, 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 a B movie, horror movie or sci-fi movie. And what I think is so many of those movies, whether they be mainstream Hollywood or <laughs> Charles Band version of Hollywood, a lot of them are very self-serious. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, but I, so I saw Transfers way back in the day, and I think they would replay the franchise on Sci Fi Channel in the 90s, uh, back when they were showing that kind of stuff, before they were producing original sci fi original movies. Mm -hmm. uh, what I, what struck me this time and watching it for the first time in 25 years probably is how it doesn't take itself serious. I mean, it kind of does. It's, it's yeah. not a, it's not, it's not a parody, it's not a spoof. But to there's a lot of self-referential. They 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 lean into the cliches, but then whether it be Helen Hunt's character or even Jack Death himself, they point out the cliches. Mm -hmm. and I don't know that it makes using cliches any better, but at least <laughs> at least when you're laughing with them at the movie, it doesn't really feel like you're laughing at it in a mocking way. Yeah, it feels more like you're laughing with it because it feels like the movie's in on the joke. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that I you appreciate about uh, like Tim Thomerson who's in this, Art LaFleur who plays his boss, who like yeah. he, he would be he would be in you know, you would see him in a bunch of other stuff. I just saw him again recently rewatching uh, Speed Racer. Yep. And um like he, he just some people just have that ability to play with ridiculous premises. And to a certain extent, Helen Hunt, even at this early in her career, she kind of has that, you know, because you yes, she about, does. Because you think about stuff like Twister, where it's like she plays that completely the way she, the way you you're supposed to play that, where it's like it's essentially is B action movie, and you just kind of run with it. And well, that's exactly right. So that's a great point you just made. Okay, when we think Twister, you maybe younger people don't, but when a lot of us in our age bracket think of Twister, we think of it as a, and it was, right? We covered it in our retrospective of the top grossing movies of the 90s. It was a massive movie, and it mm -hmm. was, a, at the time, a beloved movie. It's essentially a movie where it, it, it's, is it any different than any of the other disaster movies of the 70s? Is it really that different than... Mm -hmm you know, Towering Inferno or anything like that, where it's essentially a natural disaster where the, the nature is presented as a monster. The tornado tornadoes defy the laws of physics. They make no sense. <laughs> they roar like the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, Yeah. right? And it's a very dumb movie with a lot of cliches and the couple that's divorced that has to, they rediscover their passion and then rediscover their passion for each other. And we've seen all that sort of, crap 10 million times is it that far removed from transfers like i don't know what it is no i mean you it just I mean? happened no it just happens to have like a hundred million or probably like 70 million dollar budget at the time and yon and, de bont behind the camera that's the yeah. difference right yeah yeah you've got yon de bont and you've got 
yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. behind it. And, and, and at that time, especially cutting edge special effects. Yeah. These special effects were not cutting edge even in the 60s, some of no, them. No. Uh, but, so, but some of them in this movie, I'm actually surprised. Some of them aren't that bad, actually. No, I, you know, and the thing is, it's like, you know, it's easy to make fun of the uh, opening and basically see that it's a blatant Blade Runner ripoff. But at the same time, yeah. it's like, it it gets the atmosphere of what was so appealing about Blade Runner in those yep. first few minutes. And yep. then you have the element of the, you know, you have going back in time in the Terminator and the idea that it's because you have to, go back inside the the body of a relative it's like that's interesting that's an interesting angle to go through this and there there's some interesting set pieces there's you know i feel like there's like a way early version of bullet time in this yes 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 and it's it's one of those things where it's like i mean if you were going to do bullet time in the 90s in the 80s, that would be the only way you'd really be able to do it. And it's like, yep. it's, it's. I mean, maybe part of me was thinking that because of the fact that I just watched the Matrix trilogy. But at the same time, it's like you watch the fact that it's slow motion and, you know, he's yep. dodging the bullets. How can you not think of the Matrix? No, I mean, that's back to our point, right? It's yeah. like, what's the, di- what's the difference between a B-movie and a classic all-time genre film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like The Matrix, right? There's there were a ton of cyberpunk, uh, or or you know, I think think of movies like Circuitry Man and all this sort of like dystopian Mad Max ripoff cyberpunk movies. Yeah, Blade Runner meets Mad Max sort of stuff. Which this is not quite that, but there were a ton of movies that were of the same stock as the matrix the only difference is either the skill and quality of the filmmaker or the budget or the technology employed to make the movie Mm -hmm. right and some of that just comes down to timing too so when in trancers when you see a map painting at the beginning and you see a a, you know a, a spaceship basically chroma keyed in above the diner uh it doesn't look like blade runner because they didn't have the best of the best in lots of time. They did it in in days instead of months. Yeah. But there's still something kind of, I don't know, I mean, call me nostalgic, but I get the warm and feely sometimes for optical <laughs> and practical effects like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, you, I, I'm sort of that way when I hear a 1980s synth score. Like, I, yeah. I love that aesthetic of synthesizers and, you know, as cheesy as it sounds now, I mean, it's really effective when it's deployed well. And this this one has a decent score. Like, I really enjoyed listening yeah. to the score. Um, yep. You know, and yeah, this is this is one of those things where it's like it, it's funny because one of the one of the things I tech I messaged you was like, of course Santa is a tracer, trancer. Of course, like, of course he is. Of course he's yeah. Gabby. And it's it's funny that you know that happens to be like the his, and you've got a little bit of the fish out of water and stuff like yep. that. And it's like you have that type of humor as well. And I mean, there there's a lot to like. I'm Grant. I'm not going to say that this movie is on par with like 
any of the movies that we're talking about as far as like no. or <laughs> the Matrix or, no, you know, no. or any of those yeah. where it's like, I don't think that, but at the same time, I, I enjoyed it all the same for exactly what it was. And, you know, it's funny because it blows my mind. I didn't realize Helen Hunt was in the first three of these be- and that preceded Mad About You. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. This is, this, this was like her start. And I think, I don't, I'm not sure if it's in this one, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it's revealed at some point that she's actually his grandmother. So when they're sleeping I, together. <laughs> I, I think that is sort of, I think I yeah. do remember that in this one. And it's like, yeah. or I, I think maybe I read it like on Wikipedia or something like that. Yes, about right. And it's like, so he's his own grandpa. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that, yeah. that in, in and of itself is a whole other paradoxical science fiction trope <laughs> somehow yes. where it's like i mean futurama did that where it's like fry is his own grandfather i think yes yeah <laughs> but um now this this is i i love this there is something like there is something like ridiculously nostalgic about the 80s and like yep. i i i really miss I'm, I'm gonna give a plug to one of my favorite podcasts one of the ones that i got into when I first started really listening to podcasts was eighties all over. And mm. they, they didn't get to, they didn't get a chance to finish the decade. And it's a shame because I love listening to them talk about these genre movies, you know, from the time and just really seeing all, hearing them talk about all of these tropes and stuff that we basically take for granted at this point, And some of which are still going in genre. Oh films. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've seen so many films that they talk about in that series. And uh, unfortunately, they hadn't gotten to this one by the time the show ended. But it's it's just great to... It's great to sort of experience... It's great to hear about some of these movies and think, eh, that might be something I want to check out. And I mean, even even this one, it's like, there's, you know... I probably don't know that I will watch this film without you recommending it for the podcast, <laughs> yeah, but I'm right. glad that I've seen it. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the other great thing about this too, Brian, is the movie uh, The movie is self-aware enough that when Art LaFleur travels back in time, the only ancestor he can find is a little girl. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he's, he is that cliche, like, uh, police captain basically or yeah. it's like you know yeah. oh damn it you know their downtown's breathing down my neck so they get a little girl who's still saying that kind of like roughneck police <laughs> captain lethal weapon dialogue sort of stuff and that's funny but but it's also kind of smart in a way because you know in a in a worse b movie or in a worse hollywood movie you know well tim thomerson goes back and the guy he goes back into basically looks like him right yeah. his ancestor yeah. basically looks like him so it's really like well if you went back in time the only ancestor you could find may look nothing like you may not be the same gender may not be the same age mm-hmm. you know so that's at least somebody thought that through and the other great thing about it is um I think the total runtime is less than 90 minutes. I think yeah. it's like an hour and 15 minutes, which yeah. is not feature length runtime. So I'm not sure how they got a theatrical release, but <laughs> they did briefly. Uh, and I just think that that's wonderful too, because yeah. so many movies that are nothing more than glorified B movies 
that are made today that have the sheen and pristine of money and names and known actors and stuff behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, they go on now for two hours and 20 minutes. And I think that there's a lot of like, there's a lot of quote unquote genre movies that come out today that I'm like, if you had been 90 minutes long, you could have been a, at least a future cult classic. Yeah. But you can't be, I'm sorry. I don't think unless you're like Blade Runner, uh, I don't think you can be a cult classic film and be almost three hours long. No. Right. Yeah. But I might say, I'm not going to put transfers <laughs> in cult classic status, but had you taken this script, put a little bit more money behind it in that decade and put Stallone or Schwarzenegger in that role instead of a guy who looks like your dentist yeah. or, your, or your chiropractor, <laughs> nothing against Tim Thomerson, because I think Tim Thomerson does a heck of a job. He does a hell yeah. of a job. But the only thing that's different between this and The Running Man is that one is based on a Stephen King novel and stars Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, has Jesse the Body Ventura in it. And this has Helen Hunt before anybody knew who she was. And uh, Thelma Tompkins from Family Matters before anybody knew who she was. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but the future stuff, I got Quantum Leap vibes a little yeah. bit. With just like Ziggy and mm-hmm. and all, all of the side characters from Quantum Leap. But anytime you'd see the future with Al and Ziggy and uh, uh, Gushy and all those characters... It felt very reminiscent of the future that uh, Tim Thomerson was from here in Transfers. Yeah, and I was seeing, I was kind of thinking that that part sort of reminded me of 12 Monkeys, where it's like he's basically uh, being recruited yep. to go back in time. And right. like that, the, the sort of tribunal, tribunal that he's, you know, he's being recruited from is, by is basically along those lines of that movie it's like that remind me a lot of that yeah but um no th- this this was an entertaining movie it's like this ended up being more entertaining and i i will say it's like it was it was nice to see helen hunt in an elf costume like <laughs> yeah, you, you can, yeah hey, that's right. fine like okay playing play an 80s punk so if you've ever wanted to see helen hunt playing a semi-punk person in the 1980s and see 80s mall culture and see tim yeah. thomerson a guy who looks like your your local orthodontist punch a zombie santa claus and shoot him in <laughs> the face then transfers i think is for you yeah. i i i think if you're a genre movie fan and you're not uh uh aware of the charles band uh maybe check out transfers I, th- I think it's one of his better movies having mm-hmm. seen a great many of them. Once again, he he, he produced more than he directed, and yeah. I think him and his him and his brother, I think, did the score too for a lot of the movies. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it's like a it's an in house kind of a thing. It's it's uh, a Charles Band is the poor man's John Carpenter, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And you you mentioned punk. There is a wonderful punk cover of Jingle Bells in this that plays in one scene of this that is just delightful to listen to. Yes. Um, and actually, like there there's an. It's funny. Two of these movies this week have like musical live musical performances within <laughs> yes. the film that are just yes. completely wild. And like this yes. this one was really good. Like, <laughs> I think I think too that it definitely has the feeling of 
somebody knew somebody who had a band and just put them in the movie. It doesn't yeah. feel like it was like a set piece where it's like people pretending to be a band. Right. Like I think that's what makes the punk music stand out because I think they're just really like a local LA punk band and they were like, hey, come be in this movie, you know, and they were in the movie. That yeah. was it, you know. So I, I'm pretty much done talking about uh, transfers and I mean, we can go ahead and go to the next one, but one of the things that you do and you, you mentioned it talking about binge movies is you ask us to sort of rate, you know, give a, a one out of 10 number on uh, yeah. each movie. So for transfers, I would go with, I would say I would go with a 5.8, which is, you know, pretty middle of the road, you know, and yeah. actually it's funny because it, I was looking, I've got the IMDB up for it and it, the user rating is 6.1 for this movie. Um, which I mean, I think is I think is completely fair. It's entertaining. It's kind of goofy, and yes, it's cheesy, but ultimately it's entertaining, which is you know, which goes for a lot. Yes, yeah. I I I don't know what it has on IMDb. I mean, you just told me, but I I was going to say I'd put it somewhere around to six. Mm-hmm. I watched Transfers and Rebel Without a Cause, uh, <laughs> <laughs> r- roughly around the same time. And I will say that I, I, and I like, you know, older films. So this isn't like a, a I don't like old movies kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, Cause at this point, both of these are old, you know, they're both old movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say that uh, I thought the last 25 minutes of Rebel Without a Cause was just insanely inspired filmmaking and was incredibly engrossing and, uh, the movie deserves its credit. But if I had to say which movie did overall, I find more entertaining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say, I think the more entertaining movies, Trancers. It's not the better yeah. movie, yeah. but it's a more entertaining movie. No, I I mean, that is, that is completely, that is a completely fair way to look at it. And I mean, I, the, the thing is, it's like, one of the things I, I did end up really enjoying to a certain extent, all three of the movies that we're talking about tonight. And like, it's because of the fact that there's something about like each one that really is just very effective in a B movie way. And yeah, you know, B movies are not supposed to be high art movies. They're just supposed to be entertaining movies. And I think that's, and I think, you know, it's like we, it feels like every few months in the past, you know, couple of years since, you know, Scorsese said what you said about roller coasters, <laughs> theme park movies. It's like we get that discourse that we're on cue as far yeah. as like, oh, Marvel movies are movies as well. It's like, well, yes, they are, but they're also like $200 million B movies. It's like, let's be perfect. That's exactly clear. right. Like, That's exactly let's right. Be perfectly clear. Even George Lucas would probably admit Star Wars is a B movie. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he 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 was up front, like he he based on the serials, and it's like those are yep. very B movie, and it's like, yeah, it's like when we start trying to take, I one of the one of the big problems with like film discourse right now, and to sort of before we uh, go to the next movie is that I I feel like I feel like, and it it comes down to fandom as well. And a protective nature of like, especially mm-hmm. like superhero characters and Star Wars and stuff like that, where it's like, 
we're sort of losing the fact that these are essentially B movies at their heart. Yep. They just That's have exactly to have right. more money thrown at them than any other genre around. Well, that's, I mean, you, you raise an excellent point. I mean, Star Wars ended up in Jaws to some extent, right? They, that USC film crowd of the Spielberg, Lucas, whatever, they yeah. grew up on B movies like my dad did. Yeah. That's what most people saw most of the time because there were a ton more of those. There were a ton more, you know, UFO movies and then monster movies and the blob. There was a ton, ton more of that than there was Rebel Without a Cause, right? Mm -hmm. It's not to say that there weren't good movies being made, but what most people were seeing at the drive-in at the Palace Theater was a, were being movies, or at yeah. least if it was a double feature, you might get a good movie, but the first one was going to be trash. You know, mm -hmm. I say that respectfully. So when they, when they emerged, I mean, even Cameron, Cameron worked for Corman, right? He mm -hmm. did the map paintings for uh, uh, Escape from New York, uh, Carpenter, all of these people that we now revere and who then have influenced today's generation of directors like the Russo brothers and other people who are making a lot of these Marvel movies. It, it, it all goes back to the B movie and they took the B movie ideas. And what if we punched the scripts up a little bit? And what if we put character actors in place of like bad TV actors? And, and what if we put money, a little bit of money behind it and even more than money, what if we put innovation behind it? Mm -hmm. And what if, what if we push, you know, what's bad about Buck Rogers is it's not that it isn't fun. It's that the spaceships, you can see that they're hanging on wires. What if yeah. you couldn't tell that <laughs> spaceship was on a wire, right? Mm -hmm. the, boom, you have the birth of industrial light and magic. So, and then that changes the way special effects are done in every movie from that point on. And I think you're exactly right. Is we don't, I think there's a lot of people in the quote unquote discourse who don't really know anything about film history. Yeah. And so they don't know that the thing that they're watching that was $300 million to make is a glorified B movie. And that's okay. Yeah. Because every once in a while, one of those glorified B movies actually transcends and you get something like the first Terminator or you get something like Alien. Alien is a B movie. Mm -hmm. But but you but but you know what? It's got a criterion release. Yeah. Because it transcended. Mm -hmm. Halloween is a B movie as a <laughs> B movie could get, but you know what? It transcended. Yeah. Right. And, and Terminator two off of Terminator Term Terminator is an exploitation movie. It's a slasher movie with sci-fi tropes thrown mm -hmm. on top of it, but yeah. it leads to the first Terminator is a hell of a movie. And Terminator two is a, I mean, is a great film. Yeah. That, that plays as well today as it ever did. But it's a B-movie. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being a B-movie. No. There's nothing wrong with being a genre movie. That's okay. Yeah, You could be good and be B. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think the discourse gets lost because... <sighs> if it, if it's not, you know... I, look, I love David Fincher. Seven's a B-movie. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, it is. You know, what's... So, come on, folks. <laughs> Just like you got to expand your palate a little bit, and you and you got to be willing to, you got to be willing to accept the fact that some of the things that you love, you know, you're, when you're when you're going to the theater and you're watching Ant Man and the Wasp, you're not watching Ingmar Bergman. You're not watching no. <laughs> French New Wave, and that's okay. Yeah, there's a there's space for both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean. 
when there's, and I mean, that's ultimately one of the things that Scorsese's getting to when he talks about that type of things is that the space for the art house is getting, you know, diminished more and more as the bigger blockbusters are basically taking up all the oxygen. Right. I mean, I. Well, I've, but, but, but to push back on that, I know this is a little off subject. There's always been an ebb and a flow to film yeah. history. Yeah. And you, and you know film history and, and you, you, you watch everything. You're like me, right? And so you don't discriminate, right? So there was an era of which Westerns replaced musicals. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the big, shiny studio system musical, right? The big MGM musical was the thing. Yeah. And the, the big spectacle movies and people were complaining at the time that the human drama films, the, 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 the uh, Streetcar Named Desire, the Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, that these movies were being choked out by these big, gaudy musicals. These big, dumb musicals were not leaving enough room for the Stanislavski method acting yeah. films that were, you know, that were the real filmmaking was happening. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the studio system and the musicals collapsed and audiences d- didn't want that. And then you break into the sixties with the counterculture and the new Hollywood. And then in the seventies, you have things like star Wars and jaws, which brought back the B movies of the fifties mm-hmm. and essentially brought them back with a new sheen on it and exploded again. You got all these high concept movies like ghostbusters and gremlins and all this sort of stuff. And then that kind of collapsed and, you know, then we got the Quentin Tarantino's and we got the rise of the indie filmmakers, the Kevin Smith. So there's always this ebb and flow yeah. of serious, you know, 70s style human drama films, Easy Rider, Harold and, uh, uh, yeah, and Maude and all of these like stripped down movies and, uh, you know, Kramer versus Kramer and all this sort of stuff and, and these more human movies. And then the pendulum swings and we go into spectacle. And then yeah. the pendulum swings back. So I understand kind of what he's saying, but I'd also look at look at the how many distribution models there are now. Oh, look yeah. at how many, you know, A24, which I love. I love A24's movies, most of them. And I love Neon and a lot of stuff they produce. You know, I may not be able to catch it at the local theater, but living in sunny, tropical Akron, Ohio, I probably wasn't <laughs> going to be able to anyways because yeah. I don't live on the coast. Yeah. But I, but I can now with a seven day free subscription to Epics, I can watch St. Maud or with a Amazon prime subscription. I can watch uh, one night in Miami, right? Yeah. Like, or Judas and the black Messiah. I never would have got a chance to see that movie, especially with mm-hmm. video stores being gone. I just would, would never would have, unless, unless my local art house theater is showing it, which it's a one screen theater and they're showing, you know, one or two movies a week and once they sell and right now it's all virtual screenings yeah you know and i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to see it i wouldn't be able to see first cow mm-hmm. but i i got to see it i got to see it a heck of a lot earlier and love that movie yeah would it have been wonderful to see it on a big screen yeah mm-hmm. but i probably wasn't going to be able to anyways i think scorsese a lifelong new yorker who also has a private you know giant home theater where he's just watching old original prints of yeah you know yeah. uh <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia and stuff like that. David Lean movies. He, he doesn't live where you and I live. Oh, no. So No. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like he probably, I mean, if if it's stu- if he asks his studio, hey, can I get like a print of, 
you know, or disc of whatever new movie he was interested in watching, chances are they're sending it to him. I mean, exactly you know, right. But yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. And I do think, you know, as as frustrating as the past year's been as in terms of somebody as far as movie theaters go, yeah. the escalation of the the removal of the theatrical window and putting stuff on streaming, I I think is is going to bring that pendulum back to where 80 where indie films start to get some fresh air. It's like I I hate that we missed so many of the movies that we were supposed to get last year. Yep. I love the fact that the movies that are dominating the conversation from last year are indies. Like yes. you're not necessarily talking about just the same 10 blockbusters over and over again. Yep. And I think that's and that's wonderful. And I mean if if it if it it's a shame that what's happening to movie theaters, but at the same time, it's also a benefit because of the fact that it's meaning there's an escalation in the ability to get people to watch indie films and get well, smaller films. Well, because with the current distribution model it goes back to what I was saying earlier about like the old school video store, yeah. which is, you know, we, we talked about transfers, uh, you know, these direct to video movies, but in, in the same way, right. In the same way, black widow has to be released in theaters na nationwide, worldwide yeah. at the same time, because it has to gross a billion dollars just mm -hmm. to break it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To justify to shareholders of a giant corporation that hundreds of millions of dollars of investment into this movie was worth it. Mm -hmm. And to keep him happy because it has to be reflected on the quarterly earnings of a giant vertically integrated oh, yeah. multinational conglomerate. Yeah. Nomad Land and Minari just has to have people willing to spend three ninety nine. Yeah. Because they have much smaller budgets. And if they can get in front of more people whether it be in a theater, which is likely not going to happen because Black Widow is going to be on seven of 15 screens, mm -hmm. right? Or whether it's Hulu buying the exclusive first rights for streaming and it's just integrated into your package that you're already paying $7.99 yeah. for or Epix or, you know, uh, HBO Max or whoever. Um, I, you know, I think there's, like you said, I think there's more room now for the independents because they don't need to make a hundred billion dollars. If they make yeah. some of them, if they make twenty million dollars, they're flush, mm -hmm. right? And so, if if Amazon or Netflix or any of these companies are willing to pay thirty million dollars for a movie that costs seven to make, oh yeah, and and now it's front loaded into the discourse because the stranglehold of let's be honest, Disney, yeah, <laughs> is breaking down at least momentarily. Now we get to talk about Minari. Now we get to talk about Malcolm and Marie and Judas and the Black Messiah. And we get to talk about One Night in Miami. And we get, mm. we get to talk about movies that are made by women. And we get to talk about movies that are made by people of color. We get to talk about movies that, you know, uh, we, and, that, and, and that doesn't preclude genre movies. We get to talk about movies like Bloody Hell and Psycho Gore Man. And you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? So, oh, yeah. you know, isn't it? Yeah. So that, that's what's exciting 
to me. I think, mm -hmm. I think, yes, I wish I could see movies and theaters again safely. Um, I can't wait until we're all vaccinated and we can go back to that. But yeah. in the meantime, we're just going to have to suck it up and go back to 1987 and start watching this stuff at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and honestly, like I'm, I, I, I love the fact that it's like, I, I have the ability to like, I can choose something out of my collection or I can go to one of these sites like Tubi or prime or Hulu yep. or Netflix and just browse and say, Hey, that's something I might be interested in. Let me check that out. And, uh, or let me watch that, which I haven't seen in years. And I, it is, it is wonderful to have all of these options. And it's like, no, not everything is streaming. Unfortunately, I, I no. look forward to, I, I look for, I really do hope that when, when Disney plus brings it's like PG 13 up films, for from Fox and all that to to that site, I'm looking forward to some of these older movies that like are not available anywhere. Yeah, being being available because of the fact that it's like I don't have another way to watch them unless I like buy them on DVD, which there's nothing wrong with it. But maybe I don't necessarily want to buy that movie on DVD just just now. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, so. Yeah, you're 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 spot on, my friend. <laughs> so let's bring the conversation back. We we went on a bit of a uh, tangent, but the yeah. fact is, it's like it does fit into what we're talking about tonight mm -hmm. in terms of these movies, in terms of B movies, and uh, let's let's close out transfers. Um, I gave it a five point eight. Where would you put this? Six out of ten. Okay. I, it's it it's good cheap fun. Yeah, you can you can watch it probably for free depending on what country you're in, mm -hmm. and it's 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 not even going to take up ninety minutes of your day. You'll probably get a couple of laughs intentionally or unintentionally out of it. Yeah, and it's not nearly as bad as you would think it is based on the title. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the fact that there's six five other movies in the franchise. <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> So, so we are going to move to a 1989 movie called Leviathan. And this one is directed by George P. Cosmatos, who you will recall. If you are familiar with his name, he it's probably for either Rambo First Blood Part Two or mm -hmm. Tombstone. And uh, this is a... I, I didn't realize... It wasn't until I... Like, Jeb Stewart and David Webb Peoples are the screenwriters on this movie. It stars Peter Weller, Richard Crenna, Amanda Pays, Daniel Stern, Ernie Hudson, Michael Carmine, and Lisa Eilbacher, and oh yeah, Hector Elizondo. That that is quite a cast. And, and Meg Foster shows up. Yep. Yes. And um so this this movie is essentially like if it's it's a movie because this so the abyss came out in 1989 and it came out in august this movie yep. came out in march yes and it's essentially it's essentially the abyss meets the thing which believe me is not a bad thing 
in this it's case. abyss this, meets this alien is, meets the thing yeah yeah this, this is this is a uh and cosmatos or costamos if you're familiar with his work he he's a very solid director uh has yeah. a really terrific jerry goldsmith score so this one is basically about a uh team of deep sea miners who are led by an oceanographer played by Peter Weller, and they come face-to-face with a uh, creature of, you know, the... it Basically, a creature from the abyss, I guess, is the best way to say. And it gets onto the... It, it gets into the... Um, enclosure that they are in that they live in and they're like three days away from their time being over in in this uh in this run and basically if you've seen alien you can in the thing you basically know where this is going to go from here that's that's right (laughs) well what we got here right is we've got cold war paranoia because they find a sunken scuttled no pun intended russian ship (laughs) And uh, where some genetic modification sort of stuff was being done mm-hmm. for Cold War purposes. And there's an accidental sort of uh, contamination issue that happens. And yeah, and it sets loose a series of things into motion. Um, it It's a body horror movie. Yeah. It's a monster movie. It, it's it is. It's got a stacked cast of, at the very least, very qualified character actors. And yeah, Jerry Goldsmith, who's one of my favorite film composers of all mm-hmm. time, does a pretty good score for the yeah. movie. This is one. So the the history of this movie is a little bit complicated for this reason. Once again, going back to B movies. The Terminator is a B-movie. And so when Cameron is, um, he's basically writing scripts and some of them were spec scripts, which is how he ends up writing uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two, I think. Yeah. Or yeah. 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 And he took it to the Canon group first and, or the Canon group saw some of his writing because he was going to them to get some money to make some other movies. And they took his script and they made Mission in, Missing in Action 2 yeah. <laughs> and put it out before Missing in Action 1 because it was essentially a ripoff of Ram, his version of Rambo. And the same thing happened with The Abyss. So mm-hmm. when the script for The Abyss leaked, there were like three other clone movies that were immediately put into production and were tried were put out before the abyss made it to theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Deep Star Six, this one, Leviathan, and there's like a third one. Yeah, and um, and they're all basically built on what they thought James Cameron's movie was going to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because there was a lot of mystery. Because obviously he employed early CGI, which we'd later go on to use in Terminator Two for the liquid metal T1000 Terminator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know there was a lot of conceptual stuff that they didn't know what he was going to try to do so they kind of made a facsimile of that this one lands on what if it was the abyss but alien in the thing with a little cold war paranoia mixed in yeah uh this is one of those movies where it's like it's almost good <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean yeah where it's it's the cast is fine mm-hmm 
Um, the script is a little bit paint by numbers, but mm. there are some interesting interpersonal conflicts. Peter Weller plays Beck, who's not, he's the, the skipper of this crew, mm. but he's not a roughneck. He's a geologist. And the company, which in the 80s, the company was yeah. always the bad guy, <laughs> going back to Wayland Utani. Um, and they, you know, it's the company and they've got to complete their mission to not forfeit their shares and their salary from, you know, they're living in confinement. It's a lot about like how they, their day-to-day life. And they're almost like astronauts in a way where they run and they, they use a skier and they do all this sort of stuff and they're all antsy. They all have cabin fever and they all want to get out. Mm-hmm. And all, all of them have nicknames and all of them have, you know, Daniel Stern plays a drunk pervert. So of course they call him six pack <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, Amanda pays is Williams. They call her Willie and all this sort of stuff. Um, my issue with the movie, this is, this is, I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but this would be a guilty pleasure for me. I think there's two issues with the movie. One Despite the quality of the actors, it feels almost as if the actors know the type of movie that they're in and are play acting as opposed to acting. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how to describe that any better than what I just said, but it almost it doesn't feel like they're actually acting. It feels as if it's a it it, it I don't know how to describe it, but it feels as if self-aware is not the right term but it feels as if it feels like the rather than the actors being characters the actors are playing caricatures right no but knowingly knowing i i I understand what you're saying because actually and i'll you know it's like i'll i'll go on a little bit of a tangent here personal tangent so one of the things about 15 years ago or so i wanted to I at the time I wanted to make movies. I wanted to write yeah. mu- film music, and I wanted to make movies. And I had this short film that I worked on, and it's like we did it with like I tried to do it with like me and my friends and stuff like that. And it's like we were essentially playing versions of ourselves. Yeah, but it still required some acting, and that's not really something in any of our wheelhouse. So it's like you can tell that it's like. We're trying to be the type of characters that we're we're trying to be, but yeah. we're just not good enough actors. Now again, you we've got a really good cast here, and yeah. it's like, but um, one you know you know it's like you you mentioned <coughs> these these actors don't necessarily pull off being these type of characters. No, the same way the the actors on the uh in the crew of alien like you completely believe them as those characters as those type of people as what they're doing i mean this is there's a naturalism there's a naturalism in that film that this movie is like 180 degrees away from naturalism (laughs) yeah i mean i think weller i mean honestly like i think weller and krenna are probably the closest ones to getting yes. the type of characters that they're... I mean, Daniel Stern is fine as six-pack, but it's like he's essentially he's essentially Daniel Stern, too. Like, if you're familiar yeah. with Daniel Stern with in other movies, he's essentially Daniel Stern. And it's like Ernie Hudson I love as a presence in movies, but it's like 
he's so much more equipped for a character like Winston, which is more of a wisecracking character than this character, which he doesn't really get a chance to do that type of thing in. Well, he's so I, I'm I'm in agreement with you. I think the one person who feels native to the story and not a degree or two removed from their character is Richard Crenna. Yeah, I think Crenna is by far like the best thing in the movie, which is odd to say because he's just kind of a side character. Ernie Hudson, the his the best part of this movie to me is Ernie Hudson. His one line in this movie, and it kills me every single time because it's his delivery and it plays to his strength or one of his strengths which is meg foster's on the thing and she's given the typical political 80s corporate yeah. spiel yeah. about like oh what a terrible thing with no empathy whatsoever but just corporate speak yeah of you know i can't imagine what you people have gone through and this is by the time that all but three of them are dead and mm -hmm. horribly mutated into a monster right yeah and he has he drops the line gone through bitch we're still here and that <laughs> yeah. is one of the greatest <laughs> lines because there's i've we see that trope so many times in horror yeah. movies the evil corporations <laughs> like well what you've been through and nobody really ever says anything that is an actual <laughs> what your reaction would be gone yeah. through yeah we're still here mm -hmm. i just I, his <laughs> delivery of that it's 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 not on par of like i've seen shit that'll turn you white yeah but it's not that far <laughs> off it's it's akin to I think the second thing that disappoints with this movie is the ultimate creature design is very bad. Yeah. I the, so the the makeup effect the the creature effects were largely by Stan Winston. And Which, there's man some, underwater there's some fantastic makeup effects yes. on the on par with Alien, on par with the thing and yep. just on par with some of the best creature effects we've seen this entire decade. And then, yeah, you're right. When the, the Leviathan, you know, basically comes after them at the end, after they've escaped to the surface, it's not good. It, it, it's like a giant the, catfish. It's a like, humanoid giant like catfish. The Kraken, it's bad. the Kraken and Harryhausen's clash of the Titans holds oh, yeah. up better than this. Like, this is obviously supposed to be something akin to that, but it's like, it you just can't sell it. Well, what's really odd, they make this really good choice throughout the movie, which is, throughout the movie, after the initial, there's some body horror elements of it, because it it's basically starts off as, uh, uh, that the crew members are the monster, essentially. Yeah. That the, 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 whatever this is that is reconfiguring their DNA, uh, it gets into them and then it changes them into some kind of a monster. And if the monster bites you, you begin to mutate too. And at some point, all of these, it's like the thing where the parts and pieces are alive as well, where you cut a mm. piece of it off, it's still alive and it regenerates yeah. into uh, uh, even more freakishly you know, like a leg gets severed and the leg mutates into some kind of a weird tentacle monster. Mm -hmm. I think as long as the monster is either like body horror, like a thing style mutation of a human being or a mostly obscured tentacle, weird HP yeah. Lovecraft sort of monster, 
I think the movie, I think those effects work pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think the moment where it all comes together like a Megazord and comes together in this giant thing, it's really nothing but a, a guy in a rubber suit or yeah. a puppet. And it's very obvious it's a puppet. Mm-hmm. It's not a particularly good puppet. It's not a particularly good animatronic. It's not a particularly good suit that a guy's in. It, it especially doesn't do good if you see it in HD. Yeah. Uh, HD does this movie no favors. <laughs> And I can only imagine this was either something that Stan Winston worked on very, very quickly and didn't have a lot of time with, or it, 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 the, the, the final design doesn't feel finished because it really yeah. is just sort of a giant humanoid catfish with whiskers and all, <laughs> right? And then mm-hmm. sort of like this, but yeah. kind of like a catfish in a xenomorph with like human faces in its belly. Yeah. Like, because yeah. it's got the, and, and the one scene where it's kind of effective is when Hudson, I think, or maybe it's Amanda Pays, sees Richard Crenna's face obscured in shadow, and all you see is his face. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not really him. He's been absorbed into this monster. Yeah. That's pretty effective because mm-hmm. that's grotesque and it's body horror and it's mostly obscured. One, but at the very end, it's just, it's, it's day, it's, yeah, especially at the very, very end when it's just in daylight, mm-hmm. when they're above the surface and it just comes up out of the water and kills the spoilers, kills Ernie Hudson out of yeah. nowhere. Uh, that feels, that it feels very bad. And it's one of these movies that, like, yeah, it's a ripoff. It has enough to like about it. But the more the movie goes on, the more it kind of starts to fall apart up yeah. into and including. Yeah. where it's a Jaws ripoff for Peter Weller instead of saying, <laughs> smile, you son of a bitch. Yeah. It's say, ah, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and he throws and a spider in there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he kills He kills it the same way they kill Jaws. And yeah. then he punches Meg Foster in the face, which redeems the movie a little bit because mm-hmm. that's also a human reaction. Yeah. When she's giving both sympathy, when they, they try to kill this crew, and they, they already released a news statement saying they all died at sea. Yeah. And he finally gets out. And then she's like, oh, it's so great that you made it. And he just <laughs> clocks her right in the face. It's not PC. I wouldn't recommend it for real life. No. But it is a semi-satisfying payoff uh, for the movie. But it's just one of those movies that I find myself going back to when I have insomnia and I can't sleep because it either puts me to sleep or <laughs> is just a nice relaxing way to be up at two o'clock in the morning and have some fun. It's just, it's just falls short yeah, for a variety of reasons. And, and you look at it and it, you look at the director, you look at the, I think it was, this was an MGM release, mm-hmm. uh, dying days of MGM. You, but you look at the, the cast, you look at the crew, you look at the score. So they put some money behind it. I yeah. just don't know if it was a rush job because they were trying to beat the abyss and that they just didn't have time to fully execute it. But mm-hmm. the sets aren't, the sets are bad. They've got no. this pretty good set. It's, it's, it's odd. It's an odd failure. That was what I yeah. would say. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I enjoy with the exception of that last creature. It's like, I enjoy, I enjoy the effects. Like you said, the sets are really good. They sell like the underwater stuff probably as well as anybody's, sold underwater underwater action um yeah. you know the goldsmith scores always you know like like you i mean goldsmith is always going to be a highlight of a movie like this 
And yeah, I mean the mate the the creature effects up until the end are just really damn good and creative. Yep. And I mean you you really do get something out of the the shock in seeing these effects up up close when they're in that enclosed space and then yeah, it basically yeah, it essentially becomes jaws at the end of the movie where it's like after they escape and I was I was actually I was disappointed that Ernie Hudson's character ended up dying. It's like, oh my god, a black man's actually gonna survive a horror movie. I'm always <laughs> disappointed by that. Yeah, because he makes it through. I mean, when we say he makes it through the end, he makes it through to like the last two minutes. Yeah. And then they kill him. They're like in a very like he just gets kind of drowned. Yeah. A guy in a suit drowns Ernie Hudson, and that's basically it. <laughs> I think, and the worst part of it is, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that was a reshoot. I'm pretty sure he originally survived. Mm. So Mm. somebody out there needs to do a documentary on Ernie Hudson because this guy is prime example of how people of color just get short shrift in Hollywood, especially of his era. It's to me, it's the equivalent of, yeah, he was always supposed to be the fourth man in Ghostbusters, and by always I mean like once they realized they didn't have Murphy, Eddie Murphy. They realized they needed an entry point. They needed an everyman for the movie. Yeah. And lo, lo and behold, they took his best lines in that film and they gave them to Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. Mm-hmm. And he tells the story of Winston originally showed up way earlier in the movie. And it wasn't until he arrived on set that he didn't show up until like page 50. And all of his dialogue had been reassigned to the other people. Mm-hmm. And he almost quit the movie over it. And the person who talked him out of it was Harold Ramis. Yeah, which is why he has an affinity for Harold Ramis, and not so much the other <laughs> folks of Ghostbusters. And if you ever see him interviewed about it, like he didn't make any money, he would, you know, I mean, we, you know, he had to deal with the legacy and the phenomena of that movie, mm-hmm. but didn't really get any of the rewards. Yeah, he, tr- he was a working actor. He tried out to do the voiceover work for the real Ghostbusters to play Winston, and they said he didn't sound enough like himself. Ah. <laughs> uh. Then he get finally they brought him back for Ghostbusters two, and they wrote him pretty much out of that movie. He wasn't even on the original poster for Ghostbusters two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so and then then you have a horror movie here, like you said, Leviathan, which is now he's a principal cast member. Mm-hmm. He's not some guy that's coming in. He's a principal cast member, and by this point in time, he's a known name. He's not a marquee star, but he's a known name. You know, he's he's no more. You know. I would put him slightly below Peter Weller at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like <clears throat> him, him, Richard Crenn and Peter Weller are the most known actors at this time here. Daniel Stern was still doing a lot of character work. Yeah. And yeah, they just choose to kill him off in the last two minutes <laughs> of the movie. And it's just, it's just kind of an outrage. It's just, it's yeah. Well, it's, I, I, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I got a chance to meet uh, Ernie Hudson several years ago at Dragon Con. And um, I I mean, if you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Crow. And it's funny yeah. because of the fact that, like, in that movie, after the death of Brandon Lee, his character actually got beefed up in that one because they needed something, they needed something to help drive the narrative without Brandon Lee around anymore. And so when right. they re, when they rewrote it and reshot some of the scenes and stuff like that, they basically they basically made him one of the 
much more of an important part of that. I mean, if you've ever read the original graphic novel, I mean, the character's in there, but it's like he he's off to the side. It's so much more about Draven, but like he and the way he performs that character, it's just a wonderful showcase for him and mm. what he was capable of or and what people if you gave him the opportunity what he was capable of and then it's like one of my favorite one of my favorite um quotes of his i think is from his panel at a uh, dragon con that year that i went to and he was talking about congo and like it's funny in congo he essentially plays the uh he he essentially plays the the cliche of the great white hunter in yeah. a way. And one of the funniest things he, he said about that experience is that he had people saying that he essentially out Tim Curry, Tim Curry in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and if you remember Tim Curry from that movie, he plays Tim Curry pretty well. And Ernie Hudson right. has just this wild accent and it's just hilarious just how right. overboard he goes with it. But yeah, he, he he is such a sweet guy, and it's like it is a shame that like he didn't get he didn't necessarily get the bump from Ghostbusters. They probably should have, and nope. didn't get nearly the recognition from it. But it's like I I always like seeing him turn up in whether it's TV shows, whether it's movies and stuff like that. It's it's always good to see him. Uh, well, here here's the thing about Ernie him. Hudson is. Yeah, no matter what he's in, no matter how much he's given or not given, he's never bad. Yeah. You know, he's not always great, but I've seen him in some stuff where he's actually pretty great, too. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a great run on Oz and some other stuff, but he's never bad. You never see him in something and go, gosh, man, Ernie Hudson, geez, hang it up, buddy. Like, you never think yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think had he been... A person of color slightly later in Hollywood or had Hollywood uh, been uh, <laughs> more humane to people of color. Yeah. I think at the very least he could have, yeah, he should have gotten a bump from Ghostbusters mm. because he does add something to that ensemble. Yeah. And if you're a kid and you grew up with that movie, uh, you didn't make the distinction between Winston and the other three. Mm -hmm. No. Winston was just a Ghostbuster. Yeah. So, and, and I, same thing here. Like, I don't make the distinction between Ernie Hudson and, and anyone else in this cast. And so for them to just unceremoniously through a reshoot decide to kill this guy off because they, we need one more death to very end. It's like, yeah, you know, okay. What you could have, you know, we need, we need the guy to end up with the girl. So Amanda Pays can't die because yeah. her and Weller have the romance and so we need somebody. We need one more shocking death. Yeah. We need that last fright. And and it just it was unnecessary in this movie because, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the monster should have never come above water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Leave it in the depths of the sea. So uh, I, I I don't know. It, it's I enjoy this movie. If I were to give it a score, I think on the I mean, this is a different tier of movie. This is this was meant for true theatrical release it was still a rush job it's still a ripoff it's still mm -hmm. a b movie but if you got jerry goldsmith and you got an actual credible director in a cast like this yeah i gotta give it i gotta bump it up 
from from Trancers, even though I think Trancers is probably a more fun movie. Yeah. Uh, I'd give this one, I think, a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I would go with, uh, I, I give it a 6.9. I think so much of the uh, production value just, like you said, just bumps it up a little bit more beyond Trancers. Yeah, I, I ultimately think, I, I'm with you, Trancers is a more fun movie to watch, but yeah, this this one between Stan Winston's work, between the production values, between the Goldsmith score, yeah, there's there's just a lot more to like here from a quality standpoint that yep. isn't necessarily going to be there in Transfers, but Transfers is more fun. So yeah, I would give it a six point nine, and that brings us to the final film, which is a nineteen ninety one horror comedy called Popcorn. Had you ever heard of this? I think I had heard the title like once, but yeah, this was, <laughs> yeah. This, this was very much, I, you know, and I had to, um, you know, it's like this, I had to subscribe to like <laughs> fun flicks or something, whatever is that's on there to, in order to watch it. And, uh, which it was, it was worth it. Actually. I, I, you know, I I enjoyed how ridiculous this movie is. It, it's it's essentially so. This one it's it's funny because of the fact that so it's essentially it's essentially an early prototype of like Ring You and the Ring. I think like if a little bit, yeah, to, and then a little bit at the end of Peeping Tom, the Pal film from nineteen sixty. Ooh, and there, there's some, there's some, but there's some crazy things in there. Uh, D. Wallace is in this movie for a hot minute, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then um, who, Ray Walston is in here, and it's uh, it's directed by Mark Harrier, screenplay um, by Alan Ormsby. Uh, and it's it's basically about um, college students in a film course who are putting on an all night horror festival at a movie theater to sort of raise awareness and raise money for the film uh, program at the college. And there's a killer that is unleashed from a mysterious film that one of them finds. And that's where it sort of becomes The Ring, but then it also yeah. becomes like a serial killer movie. And yep. I, I think one of the things, like one of the, one of the things that I wrote down in, in this movie is, so it takes place essentially during an all-night horror festival. And there are like yep. three movies and each one has like this different, um, you know, this different gimmick. And it's like one is sort of in 3D one of them has like the the seats that you know add to the effects and stuff like that and then the other one is essentially smell-o-vision and the first one is called mosquito and it's this cheesy b movie from like the 50s and stuff like that and one of the quotes one of the things that i wrote down were are they really going to show the entire screen of mosquito because it does kind of <laughs> feel like because it feels yes. like they kind of are, and it's like, okay, they have some scenes that go, you know, out of the movie, but ultimately they show what you essentially would 
imagine is like the entire movie. And it's funny because I would imagine those movies are all movies that they made for the purpose of this film. Oh yeah, yeah. They're all they were all made and, for and, this this movie. And, yes. And they all have arguably better production value than the the movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's I think what is most interesting about this this movie in particular is that it's about six different types of movies in one and yeah. If that's not complicated enough, it's all of that plus it's it's a movie about movies with <laughs> movies in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's meta on top of meta on top of meta and I think what you can point to is you're pointing at the ring which I think is true uh peeping tom which I didn't even think about but I I I do see the similarities. I also see uh some great similarities between this and the Scream series, Scream 1 yeah. and Scream 2 yeah. in particular. Yeah. And the opening of Scream 2 and the film studies class mm-hmm. is almost verbatim the conversation they have in the film studies class in pop. Oh my God. Yeah, they do. Wow. Because I, <laughs> I haven't seen Scream 2 in ages, but I mean, yes, obviously the movie theater scene at the beginning of Scream 2. And then, yep. yeah, the yeah, I mean, that one scene where in the, in the film class, it's like, yeah, that, that is... Uh, and it's not just true. like two film... <laughs> Yeah, it's not just two film studies classes. It's it, it's it's <laughs> the similarities are deeper than that. They're 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 almost shot the same. The teachers almost at the exact same place. If I were being generous, I would say that Kevin Williamson was an homage to Popcorn. Yeah. Uh, if I were not being generous, I would say he saw and ripped off Popcorn. <laughs> at least that scene. And not only that, but you think about where Wes Craven would go with meta horror with new nightmare just a few years later where the yeah. evil comes out of the movie and becomes personified and and in and in the mouth of madness yes uh just a few years before this about books and movies as well just a few years after this and what you realize is what we talked about in the 1980s with all of these genre and horror cliches and tropes by the time we get to 1991 you start to get a deconstruction of that yeah. I think the best thing that you can say about this movie is I truly believe that Popcorn is the first modern horror deconstruction movie. It's the first meta horror <laughs> movie. And when you think about the humor of the Scream series and you think about the meta contextuality of the Scream series, because yes, it's all mm-hmm. of these movies. They all have those William Castle-esque gimmicks to them. And the gimmicks end up becoming a part of the kills that the killer is using in the packed yeah. theater. Yeah. He's killing movie nerds who know movie <laughs> tropes, who are pointing out movie tropes in the movies they're watching and then being killed by those tropes and those gimmicks. Yeah. No, and man, I, I can't it's believe It's wild. I- <laughs> I can't believe I didn't even think about Scream or like New Nightmare and In the Mouth of Madness because I love all of those. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, this, this, you know, and I love how, and it's funny, like watching, watching the film that they make that is sort of the possessed film called The Possessor. Yes. And it's like, it sort of begins, it, it actually kind of begins in a way sort of, like the eye, you could almost say it's like, oh, this is like Unshan Andalu that 
that short film that Boonwell and Dolly right. did together with the eye right. and the slicing of the eyeball. And it's like, yeah, it's it's there's so many references in this movie and there's so many things that would come out of this movie. And it's like, it's hilarious to me that this is shot in Jamaica. And this is yes. the, this is the scene. This is the movie with the other just really great, memorable, insane musical performance <laughs> going on in yes. the movie. Because yeah. the the power goes out at the movie theater at one point, and then they bring out like this Jamaican re- this reggae band yep. to essentially entertain the audience while the power is going back on, and yep. it's. I mean, it, it makes you wonder, it's like, well, how did they get power for, like, the ants and all that <laughs> stuff as well? But at the same time, right. like, but I I love both of these, I love both of these musical performances within the movies because of the fact that it's like, I didn't expect either of them, and they're, they really just point to just how crazy entertaining these these respective B movies are and it's like that I I do love the fact that it's like yeah each kill was essentially based off of the the movie that were the movie that the audience is seeing. Well so if we could try to identify the six movies that this movie is trying to be uh the first one is it is a surrealistic because the the sort of the inciting incident is there's this girl She's in. Uh, she's a film study, uh, study student, and she's having these very vivid, surrealistic, horrific mm-hmm. dreams. Yeah. And she's taking her dreams and she's putting them into an audio recorder, and then she's going to turn them into a script for her first feature film. <laughs> That's her desire. Yeah. Okay, so there's that aspect. There's this surrealistic horror nightmare. Not so much David Lynch, but just kind of weird abstract horror dream movie and then the theater that they decide to host the horathon in is called the dreamland theater mm. which is getting ready to be demolished and so they want to send this theater out with a bang by doing this horror fest and raise money for their program and blah 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 so she's having dreams about horror movies and then they're going to have horror movies in a theater called the dreamland which is obviously this whole whole meta narrative about how movies are like dreams, and especially in the days of film, when you had 24 frames per second, which mirrors REM sleep. And so the movement of the projector is very similar to rapid eye movement, which Mm -hmm. is when you dream. So they're obviously touching upon that. And some of that stuff is spooky, and it's weird, and it's good. Yeah. Then you have the horror comedy that's all about B-horror movies. Mm -hmm. That's the second movie this is. Then you have the haunted, demonic, I'm thinking about Masters of Horror episode where Udo Kier had a reel of a movie where there was like an <laughs> angel, angelic snuff film yeah. where they killed an angel on film and then they showed it one time in France and like it burned the theater down and blah, blah, blah. Because some of that plot is in this where there's a, a cult and it, well, here's something kind of clever about it. It's not cult movies. <clears throat> it's a movie cult. It's a psychedelic cult that was based around cinema. Their, their weird occultic doomsday religion was built around movies. And they were producing weird movies mm-hmm. that, that critics, going back to our earlier conversation, 
we're panning. And so the guy finally goes completely doomsday call, James, you know, Jim Jones, and is like, okay, for the final reel of the film, I'm gonna kill my whole family for real. And if you don't believe my horror movies and you don't believe the, you know, my whatever, you don't believe in my filmmaking, I'm gonna make a real movie and, and I'm gonna debut it and you're gonna watch real murder and not know it and blah, blah, blah. So then that, that movie is called Possessor, which is yeah. obviously uh, Brandon Cronenberg would use that title for his most recent film. Mm -hmm. And it's this very disturbing stuff. And that kind of works. That movie sort of works. Yeah. And then the idea is, is that the killer is coming out of that movie, like the ring. Mm -hmm. So that's like your third film. Your fourth film <laughs> is basically a slasher movie or a serial killer movie mm -hmm. where that killer is going around and killing people. And then there's like at least a fifth film, which is like some sort of weird teen kind of romantic comedy kind of a thing. <laughs> and that one doesn't work at all. No. And I think that is the problem. I think, honestly, I think that they almost went too meta with this. I think they almost went this, the, the ideas in this movie are way smarter than they have any right to be. Yeah. It's, it's not the ideas that are the problem. Mm -hmm. This is an, it's very original. It's very creative. This is not a ripoff. Yeah. It's an, it's an intentional homage to certain things. It's very meta. It, it, this movie should work so much better than it does, but, but it has so many good ideas. It ends up being scattershot with its good ideas a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately it's undermined by the fact that most of the performers in this movie are terrible. They're, yeah, it, the, I mean, even even like Dee Wallace is only in like two scenes in this movie, yeah, and she's yeah. not really in it again. And then Ray Wallace's only in this for one scene, and that's yeah. about it. And then, that's about uh, it. yeah, I mean, and you you actually brought up David Lynch earlier, and you when you were talking about like the the film that they find, it got me thinking about um, his last feature that he's done inland empire where mm. if i don't know if you've watched that but if you watch that there's an element of that story where the the filmmakers that include laura dern and jeremy irons as the main actors justin throws the or no jeremy irons is the director justin throw and uh laura dern are the main actors in this movie that they're making and it's basically a movie it's basically a remake of, I think, a Hungarian movie or something like that, mm. where that is essentially cursed. And, like, mm. everybody associated with the film died. And so that's, that actually got me, when you were talking about that, that was, that's where my mind went to. And, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Like, there, the ideas in this, I really, I really enjoyed it because of the fact that it's it's very much a film nerdy movie in a lot of ways. Yep. The ideas in this are really well done. Even the films without within the films are really well done and well yep. executed. But it to a certain extent they kind of need to pick a lane and just yes. go with it. And they really didn't. And it's like I that's where when you have 
that's where having somebody like a Wes Craven, like a John Carpenter, would have worked for this movie and did work when they made their own sort of reflexive horror movies later in the decade. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting here yeah. is that it's not that all of the, it's like, well, there's too many ideas and they're executed poorly. There's too many ideas and some of them are concurrently executed fairly well. The surrealistic mm -hmm. stuff is fairly well done. The the cursed film, Possessor, some of that early stuff and the voice and the, you know, she plays back her tape of her dreams and he's on the tape talking to her. And some of that stuff is very, very well done. And the 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 whole like haunted film reel because they, 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 uh, get three from this movie collector basically. And then the fourth one just shows up and no one knows where it came from. Mm -hmm. And the effect that it has on the, the main female protagonist, you know, all of that works fairly well, despite the lack of range and the woodenness of the acting. And there is some, there's some real creepy stuff in here. Yeah. And there's there, especially in the beginning, I think they do a good job of creating like weird, a weird mood and an uneasy feeling. Mm -hmm. um, but then it, 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 it's almost like in the second half, they decide to lean way more into the comedy. Yeah. And it, it, the problem is it's not funny. Mm -hmm. the, only, the only thing that got a laugh out of me was when um, the killer is finally revealed. And I, I don't really want to spoil this one because I don't think anyone's ever seen it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you hear us, you're like, ah, oh, that sounds interesting enough to check out, but I don't want to completely spoil it. But when the, the killer is... Um, uh, confronted by another character in the movie that that character asks, well, you know, does I'm, I'm in love with so-and-so and does so-and-so love me? And the killer's response is, I don't know about love. I got enough problems of my own. <laughs> I don't want to hear about this because he's in the process of trying to kill all these kids. Yeah. And he doesn't have time to deal with all this sort of stuff. And if he were to deal with it, it would completely undercut his motivation for everything that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very funny. And there's a couple of like really over the, and that's the other weird thing is the killer ends up going into this sort of almost Jim Carrey-esque over the top yeah. slapstick. Yeah. Uh, and the makeup effects I think are fairly well done with the face ripping mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff and the transformation. I thought some of that was pretty seamless and it's all done practically or optically. I think that some of that was well done. So there's so much here. Yeah. That should like it's 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 I don't know that honestly, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie with this much potential from the script level all the way up that I've just re like I'm not I'm just I'm I don't know how to describe it's like um cinematic blue balls <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know what i mean it, yeah. it's it's like oh my god this is so far ahead of its time and it is so it has so many good ideas and if it were just 10 percent smarter and 20 percent better acted i think this might be a true cult classic oh yeah i i think so too so a couple of things just looking at the uh trivia on imdb that i think do kind of some of these do, when you think about it, do kind of fit 
into why this movie ultimately doesn't work is that so three weeks into shooting, um, the main the the actor who played the main character was replaced by the actors who's eventually in the film. Uh. And I guess she didn't really the Jill Sholin who uh, plays the main character. Uh, I guess she didn't have too much interaction with the cast since many of the scenes had already been filmed with the oh. other actor. And they basically just made quick reshoots with her. So oh. I think that's part of the reason why some of those scenes don't really uh, work. But also, Ormsby, uh, who had also written the uh, screenplay for Paul Schrader's Cat People... Uh, he was originally directing it, and he was replaced three weeks into principal photography by Mark Harrier, who ended up directing oh. it. And Harrier, this was the first thing he had ever directed. He was better known as an actor. Uh, he was in the Porky's movies, which was pretty much his biggest uh, claim to fame. Otherwise, he's basically just been on a handful of TV episodes. But... Um, so I think I think those those two things I think certainly fit into why this movie ultimately doesn't work the way it does. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's let's see, Armsby because I did mention cat people, but what else? Okay, so as a writer, oh, he he had written My Bodyguard, uh, Cat People, Porky's Two, um. And they would actually be, it's funny, he, he actually did additional story material on um, Mulan, funnily enough. Wow, Considering what we uh, talked about in yours. But yeah, yeah, it's like he, so, and he had directed a couple movies in the 70s, Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile and The Great Masquerade. So this was, and those were in 1974. So this was going to be his first movie in like, uh, 17 years and um yeah that that's actually it's it's interesting like when you when you think about like it doesn't surprise me reading all of this stuff like why the movies is disjointed and just doesn't work yeah. collectively as a whole because of the fact that it's like you you have directors who were replaced for essential novices you have actors who were replace and then didn't really interact with the individuals that they're in the movie with and yeah i mean that that's that's just gonna kill your movie and it's like it's a shame because yeah these ideas are so interesting and the execution of them to a certain extent is interesting as well like some of the creepier stuff they do get right that is the weirdest thing about this movie is like you said some of the execution, I'd say in many cases, like most of the execution, and like you said, the creepier stuff, they get right. It is creepy. It is unnerving. It's unsettling. They do a good job with mood and atmosphere mm-hmm. and all of these, you know, this like surrealism, which I keep going back to and all of that. And just, they do such a, but then at the same time, which makes sense now that you've dived into the trivia, at the core of the movie, it feels like there's something inert. Yeah. Which it's really weird that a movie with this many good ideas and, and in some ways, like, especially in the second half, like 
such broad performances also feels inert. But when you realize that your main protagonist was basically just stitched into the movie through yeah. haphazard reshoots. And what she had mostly been in it, because I knew her from somewhere, she was in The Stepfather, 1987 mm. original Stepfather. Yeah. And I also knew her from Babes in Toyland and another movie that nobody thinks about but left a deep, deep, deep impression uh, on me, uh, the Jamie Farr horror movie, Curse to the Bite, <laughs> where someone's bitten by a radioactive snake and their arm turns into a snake. And then they start vomiting snakes, and she's the female <laughs> protagonist in that. And it's it's based on a movie. It's a sequel to a movie, but it's not a sequel at all. It just was a separate movie that was made, and they needed it to tie it into something. So they called it Curse to the Bite, when I think it was really originally just the Bite. So it's like Troll Two in that respect. Bingo! Yes. <laughs> and I've been looking to cover it for some time. So maybe if you have me back. We can talk about Curse to the Bite. <laughs> I'm curious to see this now. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, it was one of those Cinemax horror movies that played on repeat that I saw this summer of 1980-something. But um, I... I Have you ever seen a movie that we were like, based on the merit of its ideas and based on even parts of its execution that you wanted to love? Like, I so badly wanted this to come together in the end in such mm -hmm. a way that I could say here on Sonic Cinema, we have discovered a hidden gem. We've unearthed a treasure from a, that was misunderstood in its time because maybe it was too meta. Maybe it was, but it it it, it it's just just falls short of being a true yeah. cult clap. I mean, I feel like it, you know, and that's that's the most disappointing thing. It's like if the movie. If the movie had been able to go through production cleanly with like one vision, one voice behind yeah. it, I think you will have had something. And I think you will have had something, like you said, this would be a genuine cult classic. And one of those movies that, I mean, I still think to a certain extent, especially if you're a horror fan, I still think it's worth watching yes. to, to check out, to at least experience this movie and see what ideas there are. I mean, even if you're, you know, I mean, if you're a fan of D John Carpenter, Wes Craven, the movies that they made later in their career that have these sort of self-reflexive ideas about horror, I, I think it's completely worth watching for that respect. Just don't, just don't feel like it's going to be some sort of, great discovery i mean that's the most unfortunate that's it thing. yeah that's it and it, that's that's what makes my recommendation of it or my review of it so lukewarm toward trending towards negative is when you see the put you on the one column you have the potential of what the movie could have been yeah and then what it ends up being because of everything you've highlighted and not having that solidified vision, not having maybe a steadier hand behind the camera mm -hmm. and it's for, from a direction perspective, maybe a rewrite here or there, some better casting. And, and this is one of those things where I don't even think the issue here is budget. I think no. they took whatever money they had and they did a really <laughs> good job with it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, they put it into the effects and the makeup effects, like I said, are really well done. And the movies within the movies are well done. And yeah, the, yeah, the gimmickry of it all. And it's just, there's so much to like, like, and maybe even love about this movie. And yet the finished product potential to realization is just isn't there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, rather than, yeah, saying, Hey, this is a great discovery what you actually have discovered is a footnote in horror history, which is this is the start of the deconstruction trend that would be so popular in the nineties, all the way through to crap like urban legend. Mm -hmm. Um, It starts, it really does. It starts here. Yeah. And, and man, what this movie could have been, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, it's still worth a watch though. I'd still say it's worth a watch. I mean, it's worth checking out. Um, I would say if I was going to grade this, I mean, I want to grade it higher just because of the ideas, but I mean, I would probably say like 5.6, 5.7, just in terms of the production value or just in terms of the way it comes together. Like this is a movie that my heart, like you said, based on the ideas, my heart wants to give it like an eight. Yeah. My head, based on how completely inert our characters are, especially the main female protagonist, maybe no fault of her own, but I've seen her in some other things, like I said, wasn't very good in those other things either. Uh, <laughs> I I got to give it, I think, like a 5.5. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's ends up being very middling at best when Mm -hmm. there's just so much there's just so much they could have done with what they had and it just doesn't come together in the end which is really a great disappointment it's it's it's, I get more frustrated I'm more critical about movies with promise that fall short than movies that are just we're all we're shit and we're always going to be shit and are always going to be shit you know yeah there's certain movies that that it's just the the basic idea of it wasn't going to be any good. So I'm not surprised that the, the final result isn't any good. This is the opposite of that. Yeah. This is where it's like, not only did they get it on the, a lot of it on the page, they ended up getting a lot of it on the screen and it's still not that good. <laughs> it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's, it's a shame. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I checked it out, yeah. but yeah, it's I'm I mean, I'm with you. It's like if this had better if this had stuck the landing, this could easily be like up there with in the mouth of madness, with Scream, with yep. uh New Nightmare as one of the great uh self-referential horror movies of the nineties. But yeah, it just it it just doesn't work. It's like all of these great ideas are just wanting there's their ideas in search of a vision and it's a shame. And that's a great way to put it. It's, you know, yeah, I, I, and I hate that it's, you know, and I hate that it sort of leaves this trilogy of this three films that we've talked about sort of on a downer note because of the fact that this could have easily been the very best movie we both saw for this, this episode, but yeah, it just it just wasn't meant to be, and that's disappointing. I think though, if you're a, if you're a Sonic Cinema listener, 
or you're a binge movies listener who's, who's come over for this episode. I think if you are a genre fan in particular, like you said, it, Brian, if you're a horror fan, and if you're that movie obsessive that we talked about at the beginning, who's most likely listening to this, and you haven't seen it, then I think you really should see it. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are things to like about it. There are things to enjoy about it. There are moments and segments of the movie that do work. Where What we're down on is the total package. The yeah. finished work falls short, but there are 10, 15 minute stretches of it that are really good. Mm -hmm. And that's, the, that's why I think we're so down on it is not because it's like crap all the way through. Yeah. It's because it's, it's, it's just oddly stitched together, really good parts and pieces, but the sum is not, the whole is not greater than the sum in this instance. Yeah, I mean, if this movie had been unwatchable, it's like that would have been one thing because it's like at yep. least you could say, well, I mean, you know, just nothing about this movie works, but the problem is there are so many things about this movie that do, that you want to see work. And yes. it's like the ideas are there, but. You know, it it just doesn't come together, and it's funny because of the fact that it's like, you know, I I was I wasn't quite sure what to, I wasn't quite sure what to expect with these three movies, but I'm really glad that I have all three of these movies that I can say that I've seen, and I've thought about that I've talked about, and each one was a discovery in its own way. And uh, I, I really do appreciate you bringing these movies to Sonic Cinema for this discussion. Um, and uh, this, this, was, this was a lot of fun, of fun of a discussion to have. Well, I appreciate it. I know we went off on some tangents. We went a little yeah. long. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That's what happens when you're talking about three movies where they're... And that, I, here's the point I think we've proven here today. I think we've proven the point that you can take three movies that most people haven't heard of or haven't seen or haven't seen in a long time that if you just read the Wikipedia entry to be like, these are not worth reconsideration or discovery or watching or certainly not talking about. And yet we had a great conversation about them. Yeah. Uh, about each and every one of them. And there was all kind of connections we made to all kind of different things. Mm -hmm. And that's the great thing about being a film fan. And that's the great thing about being a film fan who listens to film podcasts like Sonic Cinema or Binge Movies is we're all, that's the best part about the community that we're a part of. Yeah. You know, the, the, the rest of the discourse that you touched on, that those, those are the crappy parts of being a part of the film <laughs> fandom community and the film critic community and the you know, film reviewer community. But we, what we got to do here today, what you gave me the privilege of doing here today by picking movies, talking about them, discovering them, rediscovering them, talking about them together, it's very fun. I'm deeply honored to be here. You've been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, you know your stuff. You're very well versed, very well read, very well studied, very well watched. Mm -hmm. uh, and I appreciate you having me on. And it was my pleasure. And uh, yeah, I just... Can't thank you enough, and I, I don't have to praise you and all that much because your listeners already love you. That's why they're listeners. Yeah, and I I, I do appreciate it. It's been you know it's like one of the things I've wanted to do this past year uh, with uh, COVID and with a lot more free time on my hands than I expected to have 
is I've wanted to really get to know a lot of the people that I've started to know online and on Twitter and stuff like that. I mean, one of the thing, and one of the thing, it's one thing to engage with other people about movies on Twitter. It's another yeah. thing to engage with them in like a one-on-one format like we're doing now and just talk about movies and talk about analyze movies, discuss what works in movies, what doesn't work. And it's like, that's one of the hardest things to do because you can't really properly analyze a movie in 280 characters. It's, it's just, you just can't do it. And, you know, so whether you're listening to podcasts like binge movies or, you know, I mentioned A's All Over, uh, RIP to A's All Over, but like Junk Food Cinema and any other podcast that just really enjoys the process of discussing movies, um, it's it's well worth your time. And same goes with uh, people who write about movies. I mean, I think writing about yep. movies is... Writing about movies long form is extremely important. And I think, and even if it's just like a review every now and again, or even if it's just collecting thoughts on a movie for a discussion like this, it's important to be able to write down your thoughts about movies, I think, in a way that can you can succinctly explain why a movie works or doesn't work for you. And that's, that's one of the things that I, you know, it's like, this was not overnight for me. It's like, this is like, I, like we talked about a little bit on uh, binge movies where it's like, I've been doing this at least in writing for 20 plus years. I mean, really I've been doing like, like I've been doing fan I was doing fan commentaries with friends of mine before I turned to podcasting and it's, it's, and one of the things that I wanted to do when I started the podcast was there were people beyond my circle of friends that I've always talked about movies about with that I wanted to talk to. And whether it's filmmakers about their own work or about other people's work or f- other film bloggers, podcasters online, it's like I... I want to have those interesting conversations and interactions. And it's like, I, you know, it's like, I, I have friends who are pretty inventors when it comes to movie watching. It's like, we wouldn't have necessarily ever talked about movies like this. And it's like, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm really grateful to get to know filmmakers where and film podcasters where it's like, they can bring things to me that it's like I wouldn't have necessarily thought about myself. And uh, yeah, I I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you having me on the show. I would love to join you again on Binge Movies. I would love to have you back again on Sonic Cinema, despite what I said earlier in the week <laughs> for five minutes into transfers. But right. um, <laughs> no, this, this was a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, even the tangents, they... If you listen to the show entirely, you understand why we went on those tangents, too. It's exactly right. Yeah. But, uh, Jason, thank you very much for uh, joining me tonight. Oh, once again, my pleasure. Deeply honored. Uh, 
you know, thank you for what you do. Thank you for letting me have a great discussion about uh, three random ass movies. It, it was great. <laughs> and you know what? It turned out they weren't so random after all. Yeah. And amazing. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the best things. It's like, you know, I've, I've done other episodes where it's like, it's about a certain filmmaker or certain types of movies where it's like, yeah, you, you, you know, it's like you basically are talking about the same type of movies with, with those, or it's like, you're talking about within the context of a filmmaker's career, but it's like, I love the fact that these were completely random. And then when you start to watch them, you realize that they're not that random, that there is something ultimately to these movies that you wouldn't have necessarily picked up on otherwise, if you'd just been watching them together. And I think that's one of the things that's great about what you guys do on binge movies is the fact that it's like, you can even even if you're just talking about box office like you can take five movies that were that were the main commonality is how much money they made and then as you go through them one by one within the context of that why was it necessarily that these movies may have risen to the top in this particular year where other movies didn't. I mean, we, we had, you know, in our discussions, we had like two movies with Chris Rock in them, two movies with a Murphy in them. And it's like, <laughs> That's right. we, we had these and you see these connections and it's like, okay, that's why they made what they did. And that's why they yep. were as successful as what they were. And it's like, it's, it's great to be able to just, Talk about movies in that respect, and just uh, and and just have a good time talking about different movies and try and looking for those commonalities. So I, I, if you haven't checked out binge movies, I highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun. I'll tweet out whenever my episode gets uh, released, and um, I I will tweet out in general because binge movies. I, I do love the format and I appreciate you for uh, what you guys are doing with that. I, I really enjoy the podcast and I definitely recommend it if you enjoy talking about listening to people talk about movies. Oh, thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm humbled by that. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, likewise, uh, anything we can do to help out Sonic Cinema, just let me know, man. Will We're do. here for you. Yep. I'd like to thank Jason for joining me on the uh, podcast. Uh, like, like I said, check out uh, Binge Movies wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. It was a great honor to be a part of his podcast, and uh, that is probably going to drop sometime around late April. So uh, be on the lookout for me to uh, promote that. And there are going to be a couple of other podcasts that I'm going to be on, uh, starting to branch out in that respect and uh, talk to some of my other fellow uh, film film fan, film uh, aficionados. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, you can check us out at www.sonic-cinema.com, at Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts, and at the Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, and the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, there are going to be some great episodes of the podcast coming up, 
And uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.